the Bible. This book is an amazing book. This book is full of geography, it's full of history, it's full of poetry, it's full of prophecy, it's full of promises. It's a book that's so, so full. It's, like, it's a library of books, isn't it? It's an, amazing, it's an amazing book. And many of us could give testimony of how it's changed our lives. So it's an amazing book. And so even though there's lots of other books that we'd like you to read, we'd like you to buy and do all of that, there is this one book that is the book of all books. And in all of my books, you'll always find at least one reference, if not more than one reference, to say, why don't you now put this book down, pick the real book up and begin to read it. Because this is the book. This is the important book. But you know, I was reading, I was reading just the other day, and I began to re- or just some while ago, and I began to realize that though we hail this book as an amazing book, in itself it's a book. We hold it as a holy book. There are people around the world who hold their books as holy books as well. The Quran and, and various books uh, through... Um, Sikhism and Hinduism, Buddhism, they've all got their books. And actually, good books. Some great principles. I was reading the Quran. In fact, I'm reading through the Quran. And uh, as I'm reading through it, there's some great principles. It's an incredibly boring book. You know, when you, when you try and read it, the way that it's put together is so confusing and so boring. But, but actually, if you take parts out of it and you take some text out of it, there's some great principles, great texts, some, some great passages of life. Some of the great philosophers have brought some great things to us and, and things and thoughts that we can do. So the Bible is a great book full of history, full of geography, full of life, full of hope but actually just a book. And you know, for 4,000 years, a whole group of people called the Jews, the Israelites, they lived from this book. They made laws out of it. They put laws on laws and laws upon laws upon other laws and actually used this book as a controller. They used this book to control the masses. They used this book to to make it so that the people would be kept down and the church would be kept up. The people lived in condemnation through this book. The people lived in fear. The people lived in dread. There were some people who were excluded by this book. In fact, the book was incredibly exclusive. There There were only certain people. You men and women wouldn't be sat today together. The women would be over there, up at the top there, and the men would be sat down here because this book kept men and women apart. This book kept deficient people outside. This book kept people who were not in in absolute perfection. And so people lived in the concept of the book and not the reality of the book. And you know, we as Christians, if we're not careful, we can live in the concept of of the book and not live in the reality of the book. I mean, what an amazing text is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty them that are bound, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort them that mourn, to give beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. Do you know, That's an incredible message. And yet, 
the people who were listening to the message only lived in the promise of the message and not the fulfillment of the message. And we can live in the promise of the book without living in the fulfillment of the book. We can live in the concept. So, so we can enjoy its poetry. We can understand its history. We can believe in its prophecy. We can long for its promises, but actually never live in the fulfillment. And what a tragedy that is. Because if the book is just a book, and to many around the world, this is just a book, and, and we, you know, where other people kind of hail their holy books... We can either take it or leave it in some respects, and I don't want that to be offensive, because this book, unless it comes true, is nothing. This book, unless it becomes alive, is nothing. In fact, it taunts us, it, it promises, but if, it, if its promises are never fulfilled, if its prophecies never come true, if, if the poetry doesn't touch our hearts and lives, what is it all about? And then one day, Someone came to Israel, the most important place on the whole planet. Do you know Israel, that little tiny strip of land, it's 150 miles long by 50 miles wide. It's the most important piece of land on the whole of this planet. Not because God came there, but before even God came there. And the reason it's the most important piece of land is that it's the only piece of land that joins three continents together. It's just a small strip of land but it joins Asia, Africa, and Europe. All them countries are joined together on one piece of land. And isn't it amazing that it's a small piece of land and yet God chooses it to come to? Sometimes we think that God doesn't know what he's doing, but actually God knows exactly what he's doing. And sometimes we think that God chose Israel because Israel was just, well, why not choose something? Boom, we'll have Israel. No, it's a very strategic piece of ground. It's a very important piece of ground. So he comes to that important piece of ground. He, we know about his birth. We know about his life. And he grows up and he talks in the temple at the age of 12. And then at the age of 30, it's time for him to enter into ministry. And so he goes down to see John the Baptist. It's a national baptism of repentance. Joshua, uh, Jesus goes to see John, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes to him and says, John, you've got to baptize me. And John says, you've got to be joking. You bat me baptize you, you should be baptizing me. You're the one. You're the one that is to come. And Jesus said, no, to fulfill all righteousness, I need to be baptized. And so, and so John baptizes Jesus. And when John baptizes Jesus, there's a sign of the Holy Spirit that comes out of heaven in the form of a dove, lands on, on Jesus, and a voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So he's, he receives the Spirit, as though he never had the Spirit, but he always had the Spirit, if you understand what I'm saying. But, but there's an outward sign of the Holy Spirit in affirmation coming upon him. The first thing the Spirit does, and it's interesting this, the first thing the Spirit does is it drives him into the wilderness. So he gets driven into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. You know that often we think the Holy Spirit will drive us to dancing and to rejoice and everything else. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit, the first thing he does with Jesus is drives him into the wilderness to a time of fasting, to a time of prayer, to a time of temptation, to a time of difficulty, through a time of trial. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon us, is not necessarily that we're going to have a nice dance in the night, but it might well be that he takes it into a difficult time. 
because we're led by the Spirit. And after being tempted by the devil, he comes out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. It's interesting how much the Spirit has an involvement in Jesus' life and ministry. And so he comes out in the power of the Spirit and then he goes to church. It's good to go to church. It's good to be in church, isn't it? And to, and to come to church on a regular basis. Jesus did. In fact, it even says that Jesus went to church as his custom was. So, so he had a custom of going to church. It was a regular thing. He did it. That's what he did before the Spirit came upon him, before the baptism, before all of that. All through his life, Jesus had, had a custom of going to church. But on this occasion, he comes to church and they give him a Bible or they give him the scroll. He opens the scroll. You'll find it in Luke chapter 4, but he opens the scroll. And when he opens the scroll, he, begins, he finds the place and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And, they, and all the congregations say, what great text this. Wonderful, wonderful text. We love this text. This is a great text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, and so on and so on and so on. He puts the book down, sits down, and says, this day, this day, this book comes alive. This day, this book becomes real. This day, this book is no longer a concept. This book is real. All of the prophecies, all of the poetries, all of the promises, all of the stuff that's in here comes alive today. I'm it. Because the book comes to life. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word of God becomes alive and real. This day is this scripture fulfilled. And you know, if you and I are not living in that same this day experience, then we're still like the Old Testament Jews who are still looking. And isn't it interesting? That even though some Jews and some Israelis have given their life to Jesus, and we thank God for that, and we know Joanne's got a special heart for that group of people around the world and we long that they would be saved don't we? don't we like we long with other nations that they would be saved but what a tragedy it is that the vast majority of them are still looking still looking for the fulfillment when 2,000 years ago this was the day this is the day Jesus said today's the day when this book comes alive and you know, if you're not careful, as Christians, you can live in the book as a, as a reference book, as a theoretical book, as a book of law, as a, you know, so that we, we hark back to the Ten Commandments of saying, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. You see, if you don't live in the reality of Scripture, you will always have to live by law. But the moment that we get the fulfillment of Scripture, grace takes its place in our life and we begin to live a life outside of law but above the law. So that we live a life that is more perfect than the law could ever be. Because Christ came into our life and he gave us something of reality of himself. And he now lives within us. So we don't just live by a book. Islam lives by a book. Buddhism lives by a book. Hinduism lives by a book, Sikhism, Shintoism, all of the other isms, they live by their books. We don't live by a book, we live by a man. A living man 
who came alive in our life and he's alive today and we follow him and you know we have to come then beyond just the reading of a book and beyond just the concept of a book into the reality of the book that we can actually say this day that book came real in my life and if you're not living in those kind of experiences I'd like to suggest to you that you're living a religious life and not a Christian life that you live in something of, of, a, of a conceptual life of, uh, and, and always living on dreams and always living on possibilities that one day, one day, one day, when actually God wants that one day to be today. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. This is the day when this book comes alive. You see, we don't want to live in the concept that Jesus can heal. We want to live in the, in the reality that Jesus does heal. When we were talking about your baby earlier on, you didn't want to know whether God could make children live even if they were going to die, did you? You didn't want to know that. You wanted to know a saviour who could make your child live. That's what you wanted to know. You didn't want to know that he could make everybody else's child live. You don't want to know that everybody, God could make everybody else well. We don't want to know just about revival in Africa. We want to know that God is real for me. And that this day, this scripture is fulfilled. Now, it's all right using Jesus as an example. Of course, he's the perfect example. But when you go through the New Testament, if you begin to read the New Testament... In the, in, in the light of a new covenant and you begin to read it in the light of a this day experience you'll find that the New Testament is absolutely packed with the Old Testament coming true with the Old Testament coming to life the Old Testament means nothing to us without the new covenant honestly it doesn't there are still people and, and that's where, in some ways why I have a problem with the messianic stance sometimes that people really want to live under an old covenant and add the new covenant to it. No, when the old covenant, when the new covenant came, the old covenant was abolished. It was abolished. It was finished with because Christ is the, is the new order. Christ is a new covenant who came in and gave us an everlasting covenant that would never be broken because Jesus is not going to die a million times. He died once and once for all. Isn't that wonderful? There's another thing that happened though. You see, Jesus died. He rose again. And he said to, he said to 500 people, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem. What for? I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. You're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses. What a, what a wonderful promise that is from Jesus. 500 people. Now, I don't know how many of the 500 people responded. But let's assume that they all did. But the one thing we do know that 10 days later, there's only 120. So 100 and, uh, sorry, 500 people heard Jesus say, go and wait in Jerusalem till you receive power. 10 days later, 120 are there. Now I just wonder if all 500 went. Probably they didn't. Probably only some of them went. But I think there would be more than 120 because I know what people are like. And I know that even if this church decided that over the next few months you were going to actually spend some time seeking God, some of us would run out of patience quicker than others. And wouldn't it be a tragedy 
if after three days some of the people walked away. After six days, others said, nothing's happening here. After nine days, some said, I'm going home. Imagine going home an hour before the Holy Spirit came. I wonder what that would feel like. What a terrible thing that would be. You were there for nine days and 12 hours and the Holy Spirit came on the 13th. What a tragedy that would be. Do you know many of us in Pentecostalism have been there. We've had kind of a quick fix of the Holy Spirit, but we've not really waited until we get the fulfillment of the promise. Because the fulfillment of the promise is not that we speak in tongues. In fact, I don't find any promise anywhere from Jesus that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we'll speak in tongues. Now, that doesn't mean to say we won't speak in tongues, because I believe that all of us who are filled with the Spirit do speak in tongues. But the promise wasn't that we would speak in tongues. The promise was that we would be filled with power. Okay? But because we saw the experience on the day of Pentecost, because on the tenth day, there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. There were tongues of flames that came on their head. They began to prophesy and they began to speak with other tongues. And an amazing thing happened. The Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And an interesting thing happens because Peter stands up, goes outside and says to the whole multitude, he said, you see what's happening here? This is that. This is the day. You know, Joel, all them years ago, in Joel chapter 2, prophesied about this day. This day is this scripture come true. Isn't that great? That there was an experience that Peter, that, that Peter could stand up and say, this is the reality of the concept. Of, of all that was prophesied about, of everything that he said, this is it, this is it, this is the day. What was it? Your young men, your old men, men and women, on all flesh God will pour out his spirit. I mean, that's an amazing prophecy in a, in a divided church, in a divided community, in a sectarian society. That prophecy was an amazing prophecy that when God really moved, he would move on all flesh. Young and old, men and women, servants and bosses, upon all society, God would do an amazing thing. And, and in, a, in a sectarian society, that's an amazing prophecy. And Peter said, this is it. Well, it was only the beginning of it. Because he, he, God had poured his spirit out on 120 people when actually Joel prophesied that he would pour his spirit out on all flesh. And there were many more than 120 people on the planet, okay, even at that time. So we're still living in the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But I do find it quite interesting that actually Peter didn't stand up and say, this is that that was prophesied by Jesus 10 days earlier. Isn't that interesting? He said, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. We're living in the fulfillment of that. But Peter doesn't stand up and say, this is that that was spoken by Jesus 10 days earlier. And you know, many of us as Pentecostals, if we're not careful, we live in the prophecy of Joel and not the prophecy of Jesus. We want dreams. We want visions. We want tongues. We want interpretation. We, we want a nice little spirit. We want this sound of a rushing mighty wind. We want tongues of flames. We want the spectacular among us. When Jesus said, in 10 days you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you will be filled with power. But many of us are too happy with a tongue, an interpretation. 
We're too happy with a happy clappy kind of syndrome. We're too happy with, with something like... Now, I'm not undermining all of that. All of that has a value and has a massive value to it if the value is to inspire us and to challenge us to greatness in a lost world. Because the reason the Holy Spirit came was that we might receive power to touch a lost world. That's what the Holy Spirit came for. Not to touch a, 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 a dry church even though the Holy Spirit will touch a dry church, it's to touch a dying world, that we might reach the local, the regional, the, the marginalized, that we might reach the, the, to the four corners of the world, and that we might receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon us. Now, there's only reality will do that. Now, if we come back, and I'll, I must finish, I'll finish in five minutes, okay? Now, isn't this interesting? That John the Baptist is the one, John the Baptist is the one who baptizes Jesus. Do you know John the Baptist was prophesied about in Isaiah as well? He would become the forerunner of Jesus. Malachi also prophesies about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is no mean figure. He's not just somebody, you know, just an anybody kind of baptizing people in the River Jordan. He's come to prepare the way of the Lord. And when he says, behold the Lamb of God, he's fulfilling scripture. John the Baptist challenges the government of the day. He challenges the king. He says to the king, you shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife. That's not on. And so he, he says, if, we want, if we're going to have a, a time of repentance, the first person who should be repenting is you, and you're the king. It's time that you bowed the knee, and you, it's time that you put your life right, because if the nation's going to put its life right, it needs to get right from the top to the bottom. And that's right in any nation, isn't it? That we need, that we need our government to be honest and wholesome. We need our queen and, and her consort, all of them to be saved. And so when this afternoon the national anthem comes on, you stand up and you sing, God save the queen and pray it as you sing it, okay? And just believe that God will save, save our queen and, and, and all those in, in authority over us, that there might be that whole thing. Jesus has been about ministering now for three years. And John finds himself in prison. He's going to have his head chopped off. Okay? When you're going to have your head chopped off, or when you're going to die, it makes you rethink. Okay? There's nothing that makes you focus like death. When you're going to die, and you're going to die for your faith, you're going to die for what you believe in, you need to know that what you believe in is real. Is that right? It's true, isn't it? John the Baptist did. John the Baptist is prophesied in the Old Testament, lives out in the New Testament, baptizes Jesus, says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, speaks about him as being the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and yet now he's in prison and he says, I wonder if he's a real thing. How do you, where do you get to that? How do you get from that to that? Except that if you're going to have your head chopped off, you want to know, is he real? Is he real? Are you the real thing? Well, the Old Testament is full of stuff that tells us that Jesus is the real thing. But John the Baptist says to his disciples, I want you to send your people, I want the disciples to go to Jesus, and I want you to ask him this question, are you real? Are you the one that's supposed to be coming, or are we looking for somebody else? Because if we're looking for somebody else, I'm going to keep my head on. That's fair, isn't it? And none of us, until we are faced with death, we can play games at what we're doing. There are people around the world who are not playing games at church. 
Not playing games at being Pentecostal, not singing a few nice songs and dancing up and down and having a laugh and a cup of tea, okay? There are some people around this world that are giving their life for what you believe in. There are people who really have to do something to make it count. John the Baptist was one of those people. And he said, if I'm going to die for this, I want to know that I'm dying for reality and not dying for concept. So they went to Jesus and said to Jesus, are you the real thing? And you know what Jesus said? Nothing. Not a single word. You think, you think he'd have said it for his cousin John, wouldn't you? You think he'd have said, well, you know, just get the Old Testament. Just have a look at it. Just see all the text concerning me. You know, just have a look. There's loads in here about me. I can give you a theological background of who I am. Not Jesus. Jesus went to a blind man, touched his eyes and opened his eyes. He walked across to somebody who was lame and he lifted them up and made them walk. He went to a deaf man and he touched his ears and made him hear. He touched a dumb man and made him speak. He began to preach good news to poor people. And after he did all of that, he said to the disciples, now go back to John and tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. They went back to John and said, he's opening blind eyes, he's unstopping deaf ears, he's making lame people walk, he's preaching good news to poor people. And John said, okay, chop my head off. Why? Because he'd seen reality, not concept. You see, at that point in time, you don't want to know a theological discussion. You don't want to know a concept. You don't want, just want prophecies. You don't want, just want poetry. You don't just want history. You want reality. And the people out there are not interested. You know, we live in a city here. You're living in a city here where, where books and books and books and books, they're reading all these books all around you. They've got intellect coming out of their ears and out of their orifices. We're all over the place. They're, they're absolutely incredibly intelligent. They don't want another book. They want reality. And when they see the church rising in reality, when they see the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, when they begin to see the, the reality of truth, why do you think these Muslims are coming to Christ? They're coming to Christ because there's a demonstration of the Spirit, not an intellectual lecture. They're having dreams and visions that come true. They're, they're seeing the dead rise. They're seeing the blind see. They're seeing the lame walk. They're seeing God manifested in his reality. And we as Christians need to rise to that. And I've got a feeling that we've become so used to the microwave society, the quick fix thing of where we say, oh, we can get filled with the Holy Spirit just with a touch, a lay on the carpet and just, just a, a shazam as a do, or whatever it might be. And away we go. When Jesus said to the 12 apostles of the Lamb, go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait until you receive power. Power to change a lost world. And I'll tell you something, I'm looking for people now who will be committed to us. And, and Peter and Jane are looking for a church that will be totally and utterly committed to the power nature of God. To change a lost world, to change this area. Because people out there are not looking for concept. They're not looking for another story. They're not looking for another prophecy. They're not looking for uh, some more history. Peter and John went up to the temple. And while they were going to the temple, they met a man. A man who had been going to church for 40 years, but the church had done nothing for him. What a tragedy. 
that somebody could sit outside the door of this church for 40 years and be totally unchanged. And yet the, the central church of the whole world, the temple in Jerusalem, a man could sit outside for 40 years totally unaffected by what went on inside. And I think that's an absolute tragedy that there are people sat in houses around here and sat in houses around our churches, all around our nation, totally unaffected by what we've done this morning. Totally unaffected. We've done what we've done. We've had a nice service. We've been touched in our spirits. But the people outside are totally unaffected. And Peter and John, with this same spirit, are going to the church. He's going for a handout. They're going to give. To every church, there'll always be them who are going to take and there'll always be them who are going to give. And this guy had come for what he could get for year after year after year after year. And he looked to them and he said, I want something from you. And they said, sorry guy, we've got no silver and we haven't got any gold. And I just wonder what they would have given him had they got silver and gold. The easy thing would have been to have given him a bit of brass, wouldn't it? Give him just a bit of money and then gone inside the church, had a nice worship service, gone home and the man would have come the next day the next day and 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 the next day year after year after year because the church was giving them a handout and not what they really had they said we haven't got any silver we haven't got any gold but we have got something what we have got is the power of the Holy Spirit in our life in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk and he walking and leaping praising God the guy who'd been outside for 40 years now came inside and totally transformed the church who would have thought that a guy who sat outside could totally transform the church and I want to tell you there are people out there that could totally transform this church absolutely dramatically totally transform it but it needs you and I to come Every time we come in the power of the Spirit, every time we come from having an encounter with God, living and moving in the power of the Spirit to change life, to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to preach good news to the poor, that we live in the power of the Spirit. I just know that God can do it and bring change, dramatic change. We can't have it that people outside are unaffected. We've got to have people affected. But can you imagine that Peter and John come let me give you another scenario. They come and they say, hello, we haven't got any silver, we haven't got any gold. Oh, that's sad, isn't it? But we have got something we'd like to tell you a story. We want to tell you a story about what happened yesterday. Yesterday, we were all in an upper room and there was a sound of wind and there was tongues of fire on our heads and we all began to speak with new tongues. We all had a lovely dance around and it was a smashing time. Have a nice day, we're going to church. See, if Pentecost is just a story... If it's just a concept, it means nothing to them people out there. But if it becomes reality, today is this scripture come true for you, boy. I haven't got any silver and I haven't got any gold, but what we have got, we give you. Guess what? This comes true for you today. You're going to leap. You're going to walk. Your life is going to be changed. And I believe that you and I can change people's lives. We can change people's walks. We can change their lives, not just their day. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. And we're wanting to do that around the world, but we have a passion to see that in the UK. We have a passion to see that God will do it as well. Will you stand with us? Will you pray with us? Will you believe with us? Because as we believe for God's power in our lives and God's spirit in our lives, we're believing that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on this planet like it is in heaven. Amen.